0: Now, Jesus said there were lessons to learn in bird watching. And I learned a few over the years watching my hawks and falcons in pursuit of game. Most of you know that I practiced falconry, the art of hunting with birds of prey for nearly 25 years. I let my license expire a couple of years ago after my 17-and-a-half-year-old Harris hawk expired. I don't miss it as much as I thought I might, but I do remember many adventuresome days in the field with my birds and lots of lessons that they taught me. One of them actually relates to our text for today. Now, the hardest part of falconry isn't... Training the birds. It's finding suitable quarry for them to pursue in adequate numbers and in huntable settings. There were times when I thought I had the perfect setup and that it would be easy pickings for a falcon, but came home with an empty bag because there were too many pheasants in the field or ducks on a pond. It would be confusing for the falcon. She wouldn't be able to decide which one to go after. I'll never forget one memorable flight, however, when she did succeed. She wasn't very high in the air. She was out of position when uh, Cassie, my Brittany, and I went over a hill and unexpectedly flushed a huge mixed flock of ducks and geese. I figured there would be no way. Cheyenne would be able to sort one out, let alone catch one. But surprisingly, a pair of redheads, now those are ducks, okay, a pair of redheads left the flock and took off by themselves, and she immediately honed in upon them. I can still see her flying up next to them, reaching out with one foot, grabbing a duck, and bringing it down less than 20 feet from where I was standing. It was an amazing flight. The redheads had made a fatal mistake. They had left the protection of the flock, and a predator was waiting. What does that have to do with our text? Quite simply, that Jesus is being stalked by predators, waiting for him to leave the protection of the crowds. As the scene opens, we find them observing his habits. We're in Luke chapter 21. Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple. But at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Now, only Luke gives us Jesus M.O., his modus operandi. That's what my dad used to talk about for the last week of his life. And it was during the day, he says, that uh, Jesus was teaching in the temple. But at night, he was camping out on the Mount of Olives. His days were busy. Surrounded by people, his nights were spent alone under the stars with his disciples, preparing them for what was ahead, talking things over with his father, and no doubt thinking about what to teach the next day. When he arrived at the temple in the morning, people would be waiting for him. They got there early so they could get the good seats and not miss a thing like most of you do on Sunday mornings. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sure Jesus' enemies were watching. Every morning he would arrive and immediately be surrounded by adoring masses. But at night, he would slip away into the darkness with a handful of followers. The predators who were stalking him had to figure out the best approach to take him. Chapter 22. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Luke gives us an important detail that went into their strategy. The time of year. It was almost time for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, the week long celebration that began with an observance of the Passover. It was tourist season in Jerusalem. Well, actually, it was pilgrimage season. You know, tourists just travel around taking in the sights. Pilgrims travel to a specific destination, and there is a purpose, usually a spiritual purpose, to their pilgrimage. And that's why the book that we're going to study this fall on Sunday nights is called The Pilgrim's Progress, not The Tourist's Travels. Like Christian, we are on a pilgrimage to the celestial city. And thousands of Jews were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem during the Passover season. In fact, historians tell us that the population of Jerusalem would swell to well over a million during Passover. And many of the pilgrims would come from Galilee and other places where Jesus was well known and highly respected. That made it even more difficult for the Jewish leaders to take the offensive against him. But they had determined that he had to go. And seeing the mobs fawning over him and listening to every word he said in the temple every day only increased their resolve to get rid of him. The problem was how? How could they arrest him without creating a riot? they had tried to turn the people against him by boxing him in with what they thought to be unanswerable and self-incriminating questions but he had answered them so well that the people cheered and they could ask him anything they couldn't trip him up and they were afraid of the crowds that had inundated the city during passover so according to mark's record they decided not to try to take jesus during the festival as bad as they wanted him, they knew they couldn't take him, at least not publicly, in front of the multitudes that were hanging on his every word. So they decided to be patient like good predators and wait for a more opportune moment to strike. That moment, however, would come sooner than they expected. Verses three through six. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and agreed to give him money. And he consented, and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart. From the multitude. While the chief priests and scribes waited, they got some unexpected help from someone else who also wanted Jesus dead Satan himself. Only Luke tells us of Satan's involvement in the arrangement for Jesus' arrest. But that doesn't surprise us. He wanted Jesus dead, even more than did the priests. He had tried to derail Jesus' ministry in the wilderness right after his baptism, but failed. Now he tries again to thwart Jesus' plans once and for all. Little did he know, however, that by doing so, he was spelling his own defeat. Now, Jesus had openly declared that when he got to Jerusalem, he would be delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, mistreated, and spit upon, scourged, and killed, but would rise again on the third day. And as Paul would make abundantly clear, in doing so, Jesus would conquer sin and death. Apparently Satan didn't quite understand the plan. But if the priests were afraid to get the ball rolling, Satan would do it. And he found a way through Judas. Luke tells us he entered into Judas. But that doesn't necessarily mean Judas was possessed. No, Satan does not have to possess us to plant a thought in our mind. Nor does it mean that Judas was an unwilling pawn being used by Satan to do something he didn't want to do. We've already been given a glimpse into his character. John tells us that he became upset when Mary anointed Jesus with expensive perfume just before he entered into Jerusalem. He said he was upset because the money could have been better used caring for the poor. But he really wasn't concerned about the poor. He was upset because if it had been put into the disciples' communal money box, he would have pilfered even more money for himself. You see, Judas was a greedy thief. And while the disciples may not have noticed it, Satan did. And he knew. Judas would go along with any idea that put money in his pocket. Obviously, Judas liked the idea. And he ran straight to the chief priests with it, giving them a chance to do what they wanted to do much sooner than they had hoped. Giving them the opportunity to take Jesus away from the crowds during the festival. And Matthew does make it clear but it was judas who approached the priests they didn't seek him out he went to them and unabashedly asked what are you willing to give me to deliver him to you we don't know if they haggled over the price but 30 pieces of silver was quickly agreed upon and judas began looking for the opportune moment to betray jesus apart From the multitude. So what do we learn here? Other than how a predator stalks a victim. Not that Jesus was the victim. No one ambushed him and took him unaware. He knew what was going on. In fact, he had planned it even before the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Now, Jesus wasn't a victim who should have been more aware of the predators who were stalking him, but we may very well be. Peter tells us that Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That means he is stalking us like he did Judas. Taking note of the secret sins in our life. Sins that we try to hide from everyone, including God. Sins that he can use to prey upon our weaknesses. Causing us to doubt our father's provision, especially during a time of economic depression. Waiting. For a financial crisis to arise that he can use to make us think our need is so great that we're justified in doing whatever we have to do to make ends meet. Building walls between brothers or simply making us think we're too tired to go to church. Doing whatever he can to separate us from the flock of God where we will be more vulnerable his attacks. The priests thought of Jesus as their prey, and they acted like predators. They watched him. They tried to entrap him. They stalked him, waiting for the right moment to strike. But they didn't realize that it was the Son of God they were stalking, and that he was no man's victim. But Judas was. And Satan watched him. He noted his weaknesses and played upon them. And then got him separated from the rest of the disciples so he could put his plan into action. Now there are some who want to give Judas more slack than he deserves. They suggest he was disenchanted with Jesus or thought he might be doing Jesus a favor by forcing his hand. But even if his motive was higher than simple greed, he was wrong to assume he could force the hand of God. It's not our place. To push God into action. It's not our place to tell him what needs to be done. He is God. And we are not. You know, it was a desire to usurp God's position that originally got Satan in trouble. And he now uses that to get us in trouble as well. If we would withstand Satan's attacks, we must do as James instructed. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If we will draw near to God and stay close to his people we will feel his presence in our life. And if we feel his presence, we'll not forget who he is. And if we really remember who he is, we will submit to him. And then, through surrender to him and his plan for us, we will find the means to resist the devil. He won't be able to use our secret sins against us because they will have been forgiven. When he plants thoughts in our heads that shouldn't be there, we'll confess them to our Heavenly Father and replace them with his revealed thoughts. And when he tries to separate us from our brothers and sisters we will remind ourselves of the admonition to forsake not the gathering of ourselves together and make worship and fellowship around his table our top priority for every Sunday morning. Judas wasn't willing to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. He thought his way was better for himself, if not for Jesus. But his failure to surrender to Christ gave Satan the opportunity he was looking for. If we would successfully resist him today, we must be aware of his tactics. And we must be willing to say, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine.